G'day, Nath here. Got my partner in crime, Stewie, here too. How's it going? Now, we've got to apologise. This one, it's a little bit later than initially planned. We were going to get this out around Friday, but then we had to pivot a little bit because that special guest that we've been teasing for a few weeks now, we actually got to organise a time that suited us all and we we recorded just now. So we kind of shifted our attention away from the post-production of this episode to the preparation and recording for our episode with Bo. So check it out. Here's a little taste. I had a chance to work with James Worthy. So I got, you know, you got to meet your hero, which was really cool, but he's the last guy that was ever legitimately and surely better than Michael Jordan while on the same team as Michael Jordan. James Worthy was the best player on that team. No question about it. The question you just asked me now, I hadn't even thought of it until this moment, but I'm sure that will be the number one play on the top 10. The folks down at the NBL got in touch with me and said, would you be interested in doing our top tens? And I was incredibly flattered. I sent a note to like one of the heads of the NBL, like why is Chris Golding not in the NBA? And they gave me like a long explanation uh, of what's going on. And then I started it, you know, I go to summer league every year and I started cornering, you know, like GMs, like, what are you doing? How are you missing this guy? If you listen to me do a top 10, I sound like a lunatic. So I'm not going to bed right after that. So I, I, I go downstairs and I turn on the TV and pop, there's an NBL game. So I'm watching the NBL game and I'm sharing it with folks here in the United States. And I can tell you, there are people in the United States that enjoy watching these games. And I imagine Perth fans were like, heck, we got the guy that helped North Carolina get the national championship. We're set. And it didn't happen right away. So there's some frustration. But I'm I'm thrilled to see that he's doing well. And I hope that that good play that he's had the last couple of games out buys him some time and gives him some comfort so that he can keep doing this. So, Stewie, people really need to listen next week, don't they? They do. And let's just say, let's just blame Elon Musk. It's his fault. Everything's <laughs> his fault right now. It's his fault this is coming out several days <laughs> later than it should have. Good job, Elon. Well done. Uh, One job. One other thing I should mention as well. We talked about some stuff in the courts. We didn't use that magic word allegedly. So anything that we've said is alleged, of course. Uh, let's just say the whole episode's allegedly, just to cover our asses. Let's go. This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, has Shea Gilgis Alexander ruined the Wembenyama Rama? The T20 World Cup comes to an end with England crowd and champions. We've got a couple of smoking hot marathons and a new low for the Brownlow. Oh, another big week. What's going on? Let's go. It's 12.57 on Thursday, the 17th of November, 2022 here in the West. And before we get on to what caught your attention and what you miss, it's a bit of a whole episode of what caught your attention and what you misses today, I feel. Obviously focusing on our favourite sports. But first, Dewey, I've got to ask you, how did the Volleyball Mad Monday go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Mad Monday. Um, well, it would be kind of silly considering we play on a Tuesday night, so that it would be more like a, a wacky Wednesday or something like that. But no, look, we uh, we decided to have a couple of beers afterwards just to celebrate the season and yeah, look, f- fairly low key. But on the positive side, we got the first game of the season against the team that beat us and we figured out their bullshit tactic and beat them. So a little bit of revenge early on in the season. Good stuff. Oh, revenge is a sweet thing. Good stuff. It is. As we do, and before we get on to our favourite sports, a few other quick hits of what caught your attention, what'd you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week is probably my new favourite gender reveal. Now, I absolutely despise gender reveals. I think they're incredibly cringy or tacky, but I I do have to say I love it when you see people trying to pop a big balloon and the balloon sort of wriggles its way free and drifts off over the horizon. But I saw one this week where two guys, one dressed in pink and one dressed in blue, had a wrestling match. And after a little bit of grappling, the blue guy put the pink guy through a table, gets the pin, and revealed that they're indeed having a boy. <laughs> okay. I'm not a big fan of those either, but uh, at least there's a bit of creativity there. Yeah, this one was was good fun. It was uh, clearly a couple of guys who knew a little bit about what they were doing, so really, really cool to see. Now, the other thing that blew me away is to do with the money in soccer. Now, I'm a firm believer that money ruined soccer a number of years ago. Guys are getting paid millions of dollars a week to play a game, basically. It's, a, it's an absolute joke. But I saw a graphic about the market value of the French World Cup side and the comparison between the Australian side. 
Now, the Aussie team's worth a total of about $59 million right now. France has 10 guys that are making at least $18 million more than the whole Australian side on their own, Jeez. including Kylian Mbappe, who's making more than four times the total amount of the Australian side for Paris Saint-Germain. It is absolutely ridiculous. And some of these teams, if they don't win the World Cup or it's at least get to the semis, it's, it's just it's ridiculous. It'll be an indictment on what they're making. Yeah, that's, that's outrageous, isn't it? It, it really goodness. is. How about yourself, mate? Well, let's stick with soccer. So, look, obviously I'm not a massive soccer fan. I'll watch here and there, and the World Cup's not too far away now at all, and and I will watch a fair bit. The World Cup is the time when I do watch the most soccer, but I'm very interested in the off-field stuff too. So, for example, there's been, well, there's been all sorts of things going on, conspiracy theories almost. The, there's propaganda kind of talks. Grant Wall took a picture of a World Cup slogan on a wall and security made him delete it. Now, this was just a slogan. It flies in the face of all these things they were promised as well of, of what could happen and, and what they wouldn't stop. The Qatari royal family has reportedly made a direct request to FIFA to stop Budweiser from selling beer outside the stadiums ahead of the World Cup opener. And Budweiser spent a lot of money to have that sponsorship. There are at least 25,000 rooms free during the peak days of the World Cup, apparently. I don't know if you've seen those shipping container things, Joey. Have you seen oh, those? God. People are they, saying Fire Festival. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, they're sort of, um, yeah, I guess almost like the budget tents you would get at Oktoberfest or, yeah, one of these big festivals. They do not look particularly great. Just quickly going back to the beer for a quick second, did you see the price of some of the beers that they're charging over there? I did. I did. You need a second mortgage just to buy a, yeah. a couple of pints here. No, it's outrageous. You, you're getting these like three beer packages for 420 bucks, which I mean, look, I'm not a fan of Heineken at the best of times, but even for me, $14 for a Heineken is ridiculous, but 140 yeah, no. that, that is, <laughs> ugh. no, thank you. Oh, man. And yeah, some of that accommodation, like no aircon, that'd be tough in the Middle East there. And then have have you heard about the fan leader program? There's talks that it's possibly a bit of a renter fan. There's a lot of people dressed in teams' colours and chanting and this, that and the other, but there's a lot of people going, "Mm, hold on, the kind of ethnographic demographic there maybe isn't consistent with the country that they're supposedly cheering for. People are saying they've seen the same fans wearing different colours. So apparently it's a real problem in Qatar. So the Sun reported that in 2014, the Ministry of Development, Planning and Statistics said that two thirds of Qataris cited the spread of paid fans, quote, as a significant factor in not watching football matches. So apparently it's been quite an issue now for over or about 10 years. Look, it doesn't surprise me. And look, quite frankly, I I think this World Cup off the field could be an absolute disaster. Mm. Uh, One of the things in my uni days, I used to do a little bit around event management and looking at these these mega events. And I guess you go back to things like the Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games and the Brazilian World Cup, where you've got all of these ridiculously big stadiums that are just sitting there doing nothing now in Places like, I think, Manau in, in the Amazon, they, they built this 40,000, 50,000-seat mega stadium, and you can't even get local teams to play in there now because oh, it costs them too much. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. It is. So, oh, and by the way, Marco Tilio has been flown in as an injury replacement for Martin Boyle for the Socceroos. I, I guess that means something to people. That's sure. <laughs> clearly not a soccer fan. That's why we deal with this stuff at the top, and we'll get into our favourite sports a little bit more after that. But Novak will be competing at next year's Oz Open after the authorities decided to overturn his three-year ban and grant him a visa after he uh, made those misstatements on a previous visa application, which meant that he missed the last one. Well, look, all we can hope is that anyone else who's copped that same three-year ban has theirs overturned for the same reason, basically. Yes, I dare say maybe some special uh, treatment for a sports star. And then obviously the Twitter dramas have been going on with the Elon Musk sale and the the blue tick. By the way, it's actually a white tick. It's a blue background. But anyway, Mm. um, I I don't know if you've seen, obviously I'll just focus on the sports stuff here, but with the people being able to buy the tick, there's so many fake accounts out there now and it's done havoc to the stock market and all sorts of things. But in the sports world, there was a fake LeBron account, for example, who tweeted out a trade request and thanked LA. Someone was masquerading as OJ Simpson. And I saw a Twitter exchange where someone asked why the glove didn't fit. And he said that it shrunk in the wash. I don't know if you've seen any of those. God, I haven't seen that, but oh, yeah, it's opening up a whole can of worms with a whole bunch of different things. And then I'll finish with a funny to move away from from that. Did you see uh, Uncle Chen? The 50-year-old man who's gone viral for finishing a marathon in China while basically chain-smoking cigarettes throughout the entire race. (laughs) I did see that. 
Oh, God. It gets Everywhere better, though. in the world. Oh, it gets better, man. He finished the race in three hours, 28 minutes, making him 574th out of more than 1,500 competitors. So he was basically in the top third percentile, or, or nearly in the top third percentile. So you could say that he effectively smoked two-thirds of the field. Ah, very nice. Love it, love it. Yes. And, and it's not the first time. He's done it several occasions. So the smoking brother has shot to fame and, wow. and has been well known for the last five years or so. What'd you miss, mate? Amazing. Well, I missed the bloody OKC Boston game the other day. I didn't realise it was actually on ESPN, so I, I missed it off the KO. Had to watch little bits of it on catch-up because, again, everything in my life right now, whether it be work, home life, all of that sort of stuff is just crazy. So, yeah, unfortunately, I, I missed another pretty decent game that OKC played. Thankfully, they lost that one, but, it, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it was touching we'll going there for a while. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a hard-fought four-point loss. But look, we'll talk about OKC a little bit in the NBA. There's a, a fair bit going on with them. How about yourself? Well, I said I would watch all of the semifinals and the final of the T20 World Cup, but I kind of kept track of it. And, and I, look, I did see a decent amount, and I listened on the radio in part. But I didn't go back in the end because some of those games weren't that great in the end either. So, look, I, I, saw, I saw enough to be able to talk about it and seen highlights and, and caught live action at various points of the three matches. But in the end, I didn't watch them every ball like I intended. No, fair enough. Now, there's a pretty, well, there's huge news coming out of the AFL to do with the Brownlow, but a couple of things at the top I thought we should mention first. First of all, rest in peace, Heather Anderson, very sad, former Adelaide Crows in the AFLW there, committed suicide, which is a really tr tragic and sad story. So if anyone is struggling out there, please seek help. Please speak to people. There are plenty of services out there. It's just heartbreaking that someone under the age of 30 would would feel that they have no other option but to do that. So our thoughts and, and uh, well, if I was a religious man, I'd say prayers, but our thoughts are with the families that are impacted by this. It's just it's just yet another just tragedy. And on the eve of the AFLW preliminary finals too, with the Crows and, and Lions playing off and the Ds and Kangaroos playing off as well. Yeah, amen, man. And look, there could be some scheduling issues with the Lions, potentially with the grand final at the Gabba, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see if that unfolds. The Crows might beat them. But the big news is the Brownlow betting scandal, Stewie. One, oh, geez, the AFL's had a lot of PR issues over the last couple of months, haven't they, to deal with? Yeah, this one's obviously not particularly great. And, I mean, I, I guess where do we start? I guess we've got to kind of run through the details of what it's all about. So umpire Michael Pell and three other men arrested on Monday from irregular betting around three vote players in more than 10 of the 16 matches Pell was a part of. They're charged on summons with using information to corrupt a betting event, which carries a sentence of up to 10 years in prison. So it's a, a very serious offense. These guys were very stupidly placing large bets with insider knowledge and were too greedy, basically, to throw in a cheeky loss or two. And if you're putting all these big bets on and you're winning every single time, it's going to draw the odd red flag. And obviously, uh, yeah, if you lose a couple, maybe sort of minimize your winnings a little bit, you're yeah, maybe a little bit more likely, I guess, to get away with this sort of thing. But yeah, utter stupidity. Well, I dare say it's a good thing because it means that it can be investigated and hopefully stamped out. But yeah, spot fixing, it's it's a it's a it's a scourge. Very easy to manipulate. Well, it is, yeah. And it doesn't really even take that much. And and I guess the other thing as well, sort of going back to I guess what makes these guys a little bit silly, is they're placing bets on the exact same thing every single time. If you mix it up, again, it's less likely that something's going to get picked up. Not that I'm trying to tell people how to beat the system. <laughs> yes, exactly. Again, <laughs> don't, don't, please don't sort of think that I'm trying to tell you how to do that because I don't want anyone doing this. It is, is a stupid idea. I did want to just quickly, I guess, go through a couple of tweets that have come out off the back of this though. And it's one, firstly, from Mason Cox, who said, always confused as to why umpires decide the Brownlow. You would think someone watching the game would have a better idea of the impact someone has had than someone that should be busy adjudicating the game live. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's partly why the midfielders always win, isn't it? Because they're front and centre and they're the ones winning the ball the most often. You also had a retort from umpire Dean Margetts who said, I honestly believe the umpires are in the best position to award the Brownlow. That's what makes it sacrosanct. It's not a sponsored award. It's the umpire's award, and that's what makes it special. Now, the first thing I have to say is that's not what makes the Brownlow special. No one looks at last year's and goes, ooh, umpires X, Y, and Z adjudicated Paddy Cripps the fairest and best. No one gives two thoughts to the umpires unless something like this happens. It's all I've, about I've got to players. say, though, Stewie, umpire Peter Kerry did nearly take mark of the year one year. <laughs> Yeah, the old chess mark. Shouldn't be any of that stuff going on, but occasionally the umpires will sort of jump into the spotlight when they shouldn't. 
And then going back to Mason Cox again, he's spot on. Like these guys can't even figure out what 15 meters is. So how are we expecting <laughs> them to really take notes? <laughs> we, we always give them shit on this stuff. They, they can't figure out how long a mark is. They can't figure out when guys have run too far. So like, how do we expect them to take note of every single possession? I, like, I don't even like the idea of the commentators doing it because they would have a better idea, but they still have a different job to do, which is providing insight on the game as it's going along. So they would have a better idea on, I guess, who's had the impact. But Yeah, I agree. And and they can be very stat-focused too. And they've got a lot going on as they manage the broadcast. So I, I think that's a fair comment. Absolutely. Well, especially if any of them are Wayne Carey as well. I mean, barely even there. <laughs> but there's a lot of empty stats too. So you can look at the stat sheet and go, oh, this bloke had 29 touches. It's like, yeah, but eight of them were chipping around in the backfield at the end of the game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and look, we've seen, I guess, the complete opposite of that. There was a game between uh, Melbourne and Collingwood last year. Brody Majacek was best on ground. He had four goals, admittedly, but only 16 touches. And then you had Clayton Oliver, who had a goal and 43 touches. And it's like, well, how's he not slightly more impactful than Majacek? I don't know. It's crazy. So what's the the, uh, solution, Stewie? What's the alternative? Well, I think Dane Zorko probably put it best. He's actually said that there should be an expert panel have guys that are basically just watching the game. They're not commentating. They're not trying to do anything to do with the officiating. Their job is to basically sit down together and come up together with some sort of consensus 3-2-1. Who's had the biggest impact? It doesn't necessarily have to be a midfielder. It could be a full forward, a backman, whatever it happens to be. And then it's less likely that the Brownlow is just a midfielder's award. I agree that it would make that less likely a midfielder's award. But the question here is, is that really fixing the issue to do with spot betting or is that just trying to fix the Brownlow? I think that's almost a separate thing. Do you know what I mean? Because there's nothing to say that an expert panel couldn't leak votes as well. You know what I mean? True. True. Yeah. And look, I guess that's the thing. Is this something that is fixable? At the end of the day, there are always going to be people that are willing to chance their arm on making a few easy dollars. But I guess... You've got to put your trust in somebody, and yeah, who knows? Paul Ruse, he has integrity. Let's just make him decide. <laughs> okay, so he has to watch every single game and yep. make every single vote. Yep, and probably provide consulting to coaching on four or five different teams too, just to keep the AFL good. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that idea. <laughs> So the T20 World Cup has wrapped up, as we said at the top there. The, the finals, were, semi-finals, were a bit underwhelming. Pakistan beat New Zealand after they kind of eked their way to 152. It was never enough. They won fairly comfortably. It was in the final over, but really, they weren't too challenged. Do we even need to go much further than that? We've talked about it a little bit last week too, I think. I think it had already happened at that point. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty simple. Kane Williamson played it like a test match, and unfortunately, the strike rate in T20 is a little bit more important than it is in a test. And yes, Yeah, that was it. And then we had England defeating India. So India made 168, very defendable, but uh, England ran it down in, in 16 overs with uh, without a loss of a wicket. So comprehensive victory there for the English. And it's got to be said, so Michael Vaughan was quoted as saying, India are the most underperforming white ball team in history since winning the 50-over World Cup in 2011. What have they done? Nothing. Now, for a country that has the IPL and where cricket is basically their biggest sport, He's maybe right. Yeah, look, I mean, it's probably fair to say. Look, they, it's it's not like they perform the way that South Africa does where they don't even make semifinals or things. That They're at least there or thereabouts. Unfortunately, in this one, really, I think the difference between where they finished up and where I guess they probably needed to be, and look, it has to be said, I think Butler and Hales probably would have chased down 220 the way they were playing. In fact, they probably would have made it quite comfortably. But I think the, the biggest thing is someone like a, a Surya Kumar Yadav He'd been one of the best batters in the entire tournament and basically makes 14 off 10. So probably picked the worst possible time to have his worst innings of the entire tournament. Yeah, it can be a cruel game sometimes, can't it? Because he was absolutely magnificent. He is just so good to watch. And of course, Hales and the Butler have just been magnificent all tournament as well. No surprise that they were named the openers in the all tournament team, which we'll talk about after the final too. Absolutely. So that final, Pakistan... This time, they eked their way to 137. It was never enough. England, well, they were a bit challenged in the end, probably more challenged than I expected, to be honest. They got there in the second last over, five down too, but, geez, they had some very good performances and uh, did it again, didn't he? Stokesy. 
Look, I think the biggest thing to say right from the start, it was kind of a shame to maybe not get the full final that we deserved. And that is absolutely not to take anything away from England. They were the best side all tournament. Had it not been for reigning the Ireland match, they probably would have gone through undefeated. But yeah, you're right. They were maybe a little bit fortunate, I guess a little bit like the 2019 World Cup, which we're still a bit bitter about. Um, <laughs> The, the wicket was, it was really too paced. It was hard to get in on. You had to really kind of ride your luck a little bit. I mean, Pakistan, obviously, as you mentioned, yeah, they were maybe 20, 30 runs short. But when you look at guys like Sam Curran and Chris Jordan, yeah, their changes of pace were fantastic. The little bit of drift and variations that Adil Rashid was bowling, it was a score that I guess Pakistan kind of deserved because of how well England bowled and fielded. And England did exactly what they have done all series. They came out aggressively. They were always ahead of the required run rate. And the only question was basically whether Pakistan could take enough wickets. And if you look at some of the guys like Harris Ralph bowled out of his skin, it felt like he was beating the edge every second ball. And that's a little bit where some of the luck comes in. Yeah, you look at Stokes, there was one over. I swear to God, he probably missed the outside edge four, maybe five of the balls there. I think it was a seven ball over with a wide and just couldn't quite find that edge. But then the other ball, I think, went for four. And so they get the runs off that over that they need. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Stuart, because I was driving when that was happening. So I was listening on the radio and the commentators basically said, and Ralph was, he was great all tournament, two for 23 an economy under six in a final is just fantastic. But the commentators were saying that it was the best expensive over they'd ever seen in their life because of that five wides and the other boundary. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, he just yeah. kept, kept missing the edge. And that's really important in these the shorter versions of the, the game is you sometimes you just got to have a bit of luck with not nicking one. It's got to be said, though, if Shaheen Shah Afridi had been able to bowl those last 11 balls, he was one for 13 off his 2.1 before that horrible injury Maybe that changes the game too. Maybe maybe they did have enough. Not maybe. No, that, that was the turning point of the entire match. Absolutely. And it's not just because he couldn't bowl, but it's who had to bowl for him. That's right. So you had Iftikhar, Iftikhar Ahmed comes in, goes for 13 off his five balls, and it goes like literally in the space of two deliveries. The last two balls of that over, it went from 38 off 26 to 28 off 24. So huge, huge turn. And obviously, as you say, not having a Freedy there to bowl his last over as well. It just meant that Babarazam had to go to some different options that he probably didn't want to go to. How ironic is it that a wicket was actually what swung it in England's favour? Yes, yeah. It's oh, it's it's just it's just shame. But we did we did pick English to win. Uh our good friend Woody from Throwback Hoops uh picked Pakistan to win. So both teams made the final. And look, England had a number of players out. They had Archer, Topley a few blokes out. So, and look, a, a few teams had blokes out, but uh, yeah, very impressive performance. And they're the T20 specialists of the world right now. So, Nate, just quickly, I did want to say how disappointed I am with the celebration side of things. This is something that we talk about too often with English cricket. <sighs> Again, they go with the champagne. Why not go with something like soda water? You've got Adil Rashid and Moeen Ali, both Muslim, both incredibly important parts of that team. They oh, can't yeah. be around alcohol, and again, they, they get pushed to the side. Now, Joss Butler at least had the presence of mind to push them out of the way, but how poor is it that these two guys, who, as I said, very important members of the side and, and really important members of the winning team on that day, Ali and Stokes were the two guys that guided England home with a bat, Rashid huge with a ball, and they can't celebrate with their team. It's just, it's so disappointing. Oh, yeah. And and I've got to be honest, Rashid, Rashid's still bowling pretty bloody well, better than I thought he would. Yeah, it is disappointing, <sighs> especially since it's happened before. It's happened on multiple occasions. There's been a lot of scrutiny about the cultural sensitivities in English cricket at the moment. I, I, why do you even need it, though? Like, why? Why does there need to be? I, I just don't get it. Like, there's enough fanfare. There's streamers. There's other bullshit. I don't know why you need to be spraying bubblies around. Exactly. And it's like spray yourself with sticky, probably crappy champagne as well. It, it doesn't add any value to me. I just think, yeah, if you're going to do something like that, though, why not have the presence of mind to go, okay, we've got two Muslims in our team who can't be around alcohol. Let's just use soda water. It has the same effect when you shake it up, but they can actually be a part of it. Simple. Well well, it's just a shame that if there's kind of post-victory photos and there's two key blokes, as you say, missing from said photos because it happens to be during the, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and again, guys that have, are not just key in this tournament, but have been really key parts of the English cricket team for quite a number of years now when you consider it. Absolutely. So we'll talk about the team of the tournament, Stewie. Hales and Butler, as I said, magnificent in that semi. Didn't 
kind of dominate the final, but Stokesy was huge in that. Yeah, well, I mean, just quickly about both of them. I mean, both averages over 40, both strike rates over 140, both had high scores of over 80, not out as well. We saw how devastating they can be in that India route in the semifinals. As I said before, they would have probably comfortably chased 220 on that day. My only slight thought was Max O'Dowd was maybe a little bit unlucky, second leading run scorer in the tournament, but he played more games. His average strike rate and high score were all lower than those two. So I think you've got to go with Butler and Hales. Yeah, there's no problems there for me at all. So I guess the upper and then middle order, Virat Kohli, Suryakumar Yadav, Glenn Phillips, and Sikanda Raza. So all four of them had really, really good tournaments. What Have you made much out of those four guys? Uh, I think I think the well Yadav is is just so good to watch and I, I think I think it was often there'll be at least one or two in a list that you go eh, but I thought it was pretty spot on I've got to say for the tournament. Yeah, I think those four absolutely fine. I mean, Coley played the knock of the tournament against Pakistan. He was the top run scorer and on a team that made the semi-finals. And in what was basically the match of the tournament too, like India Pakistan doesn't get any bigger. It doesn't. Yeah, so that's yeah spot on. Yadav, yeah, as we mentioned, I mean, it's not just the runs, it's the strike rate, nearly 190. So he is just hitting the ball everywhere, that full 360 sort of player. As I said before, unfortunately played his worst innings in the semifinal. India probably needed a 50 or 30 at that stage, but look, it happens, unfortunately. Phillips from New Zealand, we mentioned before as well, really quality player, strike rate of 158, high score of 104, one of only two centuries in the Super 12s. Unfortunately, like Yadav, played a horrible knock in the semifinal against Pakistan, six off eight, and the century probably makes the whole thing look a little bit better than it was, but yeah, real talented player. And yeah, Sikanda Raza, strike rate of 148, high score of 82, real shining light in a Zimbabwe team that probably were disappointed not to have won more games in the Super 12s. Yeah, but I think their trajectory is is on the up and up. So I think Zimbabwean cricket fans will will be feeling pretty optimistic, and I think they'll be reasonably happy with their tournament. I mean, they had that big scalp as well. So yeah, well, they beat Pakistan. Yeah, so yeah, they definitely exactly. can feel, like they beat feel the good finals. about some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was there was a couple of games they probably felt they could have maybe won. But look, it's uh, it, yeah, it's a great run from them. Raza, yeah, played great, so definitely deserves to be part of the team. Then the all rounders and bowlers, Chewy, shut up, Khan. Uh, Nortcha there for South Africa, Mark Wood, Shaheen Afridi, and Ashdeep Singh. Yeah, well, look, I think Khan was the right choice as the all-rounder. 98 runs, at average of 24, really good strike rate, 168. Had a 50 as well, so a really good effort there. 11 wickets at 15 as well, an economy rate of 6.3, which is very, very impressive in any sort of T20. I think Nortcher was probably one of the picks of the entire tournament as far as the bowlers go. One of the things we did speak about before the tournament is when you're bowling with that much heat, there is obviously the concern you can go for runs. As Aussies, we've endured that with Sean Tate and I guess early Mitchell Johnson. For him to go at an economy rate of 5.37 for the tournament, 11 wickets at 8.54. I mean, he was just sensational. More than two wickets a game, really miserly. So yeah, he's an absolute walk-up. Mark Wood's probably the one big mistake for me. Uh, there's probably a couple of guys, but I think Wood's probably the big one. So nine wickets at 12, strike rate of 7.7. For me, it's the right team, but the wrong bowler. I think Sam Curran was a guy that has to be in that team. 13 wickets, a better economy rate, better strike rate, man of the match in the final, three for 12 or four overs. Wood couldn't even get into the side for the final. So yeah, I think for it. me, Curran has, he has to make it. Yeah, no, that's fair. And Curran plays the conditions really well, as do Afridi and, and Nortcher. So it's it's probably no surprise that they made the, the squad. Look, I'm a big fan of Mark Wood. I was quite impressed with him when I saw him live here at, at Optus in Perth in a, in one of the warm-up matches. But no, if you're not in the team for the final, you're right. <laughs> maybe, maybe you shouldn't be in the team of the tournament. Well, yeah, I mean, just being that left arm option, having those really good change-ups. He bowls a very, very good slower ball, does Curran. Uh, and handy with the bat if he needs to be. I mean, didn't necessarily in this tournament, but he certainly can be. So I think that's maybe the biggest mistake that they've made. Afridi, excellent. You know, again, economy rate low, just over six, 11 wickets. Had he not been injured, I still think he would have swung that final against England. It just looked menacing every time he took the ball. And Ashdeep Singh, for me, is another one that maybe is a slight misstep. So 10 wickets, economy rate of nearly eight. He was excellent for India. It certainly surprised me having not seen him before, but I think you've got to make room for a spinner. You had Hasaranga de Silva for Sri Lanka. He led the tournament in wickets with 15, had lower averages and economy rates. His economy was only 6.4 for a spinner as well. So I think you've got to make room for him. And I think Singh's probably the guy that makes way for me. I guess maybe they factored in the fact that obviously Sri Lanka didn't make the finals and India topped their group. So maybe winning played a part there. Yeah. And look, I mean, I guess based on that, then Sikanda Raza probably has to come out as well. 
well so yeah, well, I don't yeah know. you're I, right I don't think you, the logic yeah. yeah true yeah yeah you, you can't put all the all the eggs in that basket of winning you do sometimes have to look at it and say well maybe Sri Lanka was only as good as they were because of the silver but yeah look it's tough no matter no, how you put counter. these things together yeah yeah th- there's, there's always going to be people that feel like they've been snubbed so no one had any chance to celebrate at all already at time of recording England are five for 144 in the first one day international against Australia at Adelaide Oval. So <laughs> the, the tournament wraps and then merely days later, it's not the only game going on at the moment too. I know that India have gone over across the Tasman to New Zealand too. So no one's getting much of a reprieve. I, I still wonder, does this tournament need to be played every two years? Why wouldn't we make it every no. four years, like the 50 over one? And, and Couldn't agree more. And follow-up question, the fact that it is every two years, to me... It almost feels like a way of killing off the 50 over format quicker. Yep. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I guess, yeah, getting back into the 50 over stuff, how this all goes. I mean, obviously, we know Australia's a better 50 over side than a 20 over side. And look, David Milan's playing well from the looks of it. He's got a 62 on the board so far, not out. And we'll, we'll see how that goes. But a lot of, lot of good cricket coming up. Yeah, Camo 2 for 47, the pick of the bowlers at the moment. And he's recently announced that he won't be competing in the IPL. So Australia has a very busy cricket calendar next year, and it's good to see that he's focusing on the national team. So, Nate, just a couple of things to quickly round out the cricket. Did you see that finally America has announced dates for the debut season of their Major League Cricket? Yes, they settled on that ridiculous name. (laughs) Only because you told me, actually. But I think it's not surprising. Major League Soccer, everything's Major League. So, yeah, that's predictable. (sighs) Crazy. So the inaugural fixtures will take place between the 13th and 30th of July next year. There will be six teams, Dallas, San Francisco, LA, Washington, Seattle, and New York. No players named just yet, but there apparently will be some big name internationals. And they haven't even done team names yet, although I do imagine we'll see the Washington cricket team. <laughs> I would think it would be funnier if they were called the Washington football team. That would actually be better, actually. Yeah, just to confuse, yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. And I have to say, if the team from New York are not called the New Yorkers, then what the hell are we even doing? Oh, mate, they should be removed from the competition if they don't take that opportunity. They really should. They really should. Now, it is a T20 format. I guess the big thing for me is I'm just hoping that there won't be like a seventh overstretch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. No, it'll be very interesting to see what they do with it. And that's in the lead up to the next T20 World Cup where they're co-hosting with the Caribbean, I believe. So, yes, that will be Mm. a very interesting road test, that one. Yeah. Definitely. A lot of details, though, still to play out on that. Just got announced yesterday. And I thought that's you know, kind of exciting that America's finally decided to play ball, so to speak. How ironic would it be if they did call themselves the New Yorkers and then had a team full of spinners and batsmen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. They'd pretty much have to go out and get guys that are Yorker specialists of the, <laughs> the ilk of like a Mitchell Stark or someone like that. But I think so. Jofra Archer, yeah. Yes. Now, the other thing I did want to just quickly mention, we, we always talk about the quality of content that the European cricket gives us. We've had another absolute corker this week. Pakistani Adil Arif plays for Falco in Spain, and in a match on Tuesday against Trinitat Royal Stars... Trinitat and Tobago? Yeah, Trinitat and Tobago. <laughs> Arif came on to bowl the final over. Now, he's bowled two no balls, one for height and one for being completely off the side of the pitch, and eight wides. Eight. I reckon we should go and try and get a contract, Stewie. Well, bloody hell. Well, I dare say, I dare say you or I would not take a European cricket record 16 balls to bowl an over. Jeez. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Now, for what it's worth, he did take a wicket off the last ball, so that is kind of cool. But one of the things I did mention about European cricket recently is that it shows both ends of the spectrum. So you have these incredible missed runouts to guys miraculously hitting sixes to win matches. Well, wouldn't you know it, Chasing Trinitat's score of 4 for 132 off 10 overs, of all people, Adil Arif hit back-to-back sixes to win the match in the final over with a cameo of 26 off 10. You have to love it. Oh, very nice indeed, yes. Decent score too, hey? There you go. Very, very, very decent score. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week belongs to Russian adult film star Alina Yeromenko, better known as Alina Hennessy and an offer that she made to Russian footballer Alexander Cochran. Now, Cochran had been struggling with Dynamo Moscow, and during a session where Hennessy was rating Russian footballers based on looks, she immediately gave Cochran a 10 and stated, quote, If before the end of the championship Russian Super League season, Ali Cochran scores five balls, I promise to hold a 16-hour sex marathon with him as a thank you. Wow. It's fitting that he's called Cochran. Well, yes, there is a Cocker and Gag coming up. I, oh, I, sorry, I must admit, oh, I, I, oh, I've jumped the gun. <laughs> sorry, Stewie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> now, look, unfortunately for Alexander, he will not be giving her a Cochrane because he only managed one more goal for the season. But oh, I have to say, 16 hours. Mate, I, I would be happy with, like, <laughs> one go and a one go and a 15-hour, 45-minute sleep. That would be enough for me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, very good. Yeah, well, the, the pressure of the offer didn't work, did it? It did the, the reverse no. by the same. Reverse Cargill. Re- <laughs> Sorry. There it is. Uh, the adults only is. section of bloody hell this week. Yeah. Low hanging fruit or plums, if you will. <laughs> so to Alina Yeromenko and Alexander Cochran, all I can say is Kravaviad. Bloody hell. Bloody. Now, before you get too fast, Joey, I've got one too. What made Nate say bloody hell? Yes. Now, have you seen the new. Paris 2024 Olympic Games mascots. Oh, I did see something about this where people have been giving them an X-rated review of some sort. I didn't actually get to read it. Tell me about it. Yeah, so look, apologies for pronunciation. I believe they're known as the Fruges. People have said that they look like a giant clitoris in sneakers. Oh, wow. So basically none of the male competitors will be able to find them then. Actually, that's not fair. It's not. It's the G spot, not the clitoris that we generally can't <laughs> yeah, find. Yeah, but it's, oh, it's still good. Don't don't let facts get in the way of a good joke, Chewy. But apparently, so in the New York Post, they've reported apparently they look very similar to actual mascots that were made for I think it was International Women's Day or something. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we just recycled them. That's oh, great. You, oh, you got to have a look though. It's yeah, I can understand why people are saying it, and it actually reminds me. Do you remember the London twenty twelve? Olympic logo? Uh, Not really, no. I'm going to have a look for it right now. So it kind of looks like the number 2012, but people basically at the time, because I remember we were in London not not long before the games kicked off and I have newspapers and all sorts of stuff, but I remember people said basically that, well, how do I put this nicely? It looks like Lisa Simpson fellating someone. Yeah, it does. Well, I mean, either either a blowjob or a handjob, one of the two, but it's, uh, wow. Again, how do marketing teams and people that come up with this stuff not look at it and go, well, it's pretty obvious. Do you know what they need to do? They need to give that that job to immature blokes like us to just say, what can you see? And we'd just be like, well, it looks like Lisa giving a blowjob, so you <laughs> yeah, exactly. probably shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe it looks don't like anatomy. Maybe, yeah, maybe not use sexual anatomy as a, yeah. But it seems on 12-year oh, cycles, Stewie. So I guess in 2036, there'll be a giant cock and balls or something. Yeah, why not? Why not? Cochran and balls. <laughs> uh, full circle, pure genius. So I say to the Paris organisers, Stewie, pourtant d'enfer, bloody hell. Bloody hell. So let's start the NBL with a nice story, Stewie. We're fresh off the FIBA break and Australia had a massive win over Kazakhstan. I don't think we need to go into that into too much detail, playing at the velodrome there. I said they'd smash him to Woody. I didn't think it would be 47 points or whatever it was. <laughs> um, Not that that was a revelation. Woody knew that we'd smash them too, of course. But there's been some massive news out of Melbourne United and really good news for a modern world and a progressive world with Isaac Humphreys being the first professional Australian basketballer to come out as gay. Yeah, look, a hopefully inspiring story, I guess. A huge moment for the league, I guess. You wonder if this maybe could be a pioneer for something like the Pride jerseys. You know, we had a a really, really horrible experience with how the NRL handled that. But obviously, we have a a great thing going in the NBL with a number of different jerseys, whether it be the Indigenous jerseys or the Looney Tunes round. I think now is probably the time to maybe have those Pride jerseys. I think it'd be a a really great time to do it. it. It just, to me, it still feels like such a shame, though, that in this day and age, people like him have to feel brave enough to discuss this sort of thing. Like, hearing him talk about his struggles and the suicidal thoughts he had because yeah. he didn't feel like he could be who he is yeah. in front of people. It, it is. It's still, it breaks my heart that grown men can't feel like they can come out to people that easily. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I remember going back quite a few years, one of, uh, I guess, our mutual friends or probably more a friend of yours came out to you and uh, it didn't really come as a big surprise to you. But at the same time as well, like I know in speaking with you and how you handled it, it was just like, yeah, cool. Like nothing changes. Well, that's right. That's how it should be. I mean, you've got to acknowledge it is a big deal and and it's a shame that people should have to feel brave to do it, but good on him for being a trailblazer and and hopefully it will inspire more people. And yeah, like good on him and hopefully he can, hopefully it's a big burden off his shoulders too. And hopefully he can have a good and happy life because it is, it's heartbreaking. And 
It's a common experience, unfortunately. A lot of young people, they do have suicidal thoughts and some people act on them too, which is just heartbreaking when families disown them and a lot of terrible stuff happens. So it's good that we're moving in the right direction. We've still got a long way to go. We had that plebiscite that the government had many years ago when about 70, 75% of the population believed in gay marriage. So it was a completely useless plebiscite and it did more harm than good. So we do still have a very long way to go without kind of getting too political, but yeah, it's it's just good news and and as I say, hopefully Isaac can have a really nice, happy, fulfilling life and it's inspired other young people to also feel comfortable in their own skin as everyone should. Yeah. And as I said, like I really just I hope as the years go by that this becomes less and less of a big deal because at the end of the day, it's perfectly normal. This is just part of life. So the import merry-go-round continues, Joey. Brady Manic here in Perth has survived, but in addition to the Jordan Caroline news, which was the world's worst kept secret. Now George King has also been dropped by Illawarra. So there's yet another one that was just announced probably oh, less than 10 hours ago this morning. Yeah, it's interesting. So Jordan Caroline replaced by Marcus Lee from Basket Manresa from the Liga ACB in Spain. I haven't really had a chance to see much more of the highlights. For me, I mean, it's pretty obvious what we're getting. He's an athletic finisher around the room. Expect a lot of lobs. He's going to block shots. The numbers definitely don't jump off the page at you. He's an absolutely hideous foul shooter from what I can see as well. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned that maybe he doesn't really feel the need United. Like they've got Humphreys, they've got David Aquera there. What I think they really need is a four who can stretch the floor. Lee doesn't have that sort of range. I think someone like, I don't know, a Robert Frank sort of style would have been quite handy for them. So I'm a little bit worried about the fit here. Uh, and it's look, it's obviously early days. The guy hasn't even played a game yet. So we will soon see. But uh, yeah, I'm a bit concerned about that one. Well, I also wonder if Ray John Tucker's the right man for the job there too. So so they have some import issues, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that one unfolds. And then look, the George King one, I mean, again, it's probably not a, a major, major secret. Seems a little bit similar to the whole Craig Randall thing. He's a talented guy, but maybe not the best locker room sort of guy. I wonder if Illawarra use, oh, I don't know, Jordan Caroline maybe? <laughs> well, they're the rumours, aren't they? It could happen. Yeah, I think he'd be a good fit there. So we will see. And then obviously there's been rumours. It doesn't take Twitter long at all. I think George King, a lot of people are already saying Brisbane would be a good fit for him. Yeah, well, he certainly destroyed Perth that time, didn't he? We, we were lucky to escape with a win in that game. So he's he's not he's not terrible. So the next NBL round begins in earnest this evening. I've been very lucky enough to receive a free ticket. It's actually not being played in earnest. They've moved the game to RAC Arena. Uh, well, just which as well, that's, yeah, that's where we live. So that's, that, that is yes, better for and, us. Ernest, I believe, is a small town in Austria, so it'd be a very, very long drive. But uh, yes, we do indeed have tickets to the game. Southeast Melbourne will be looking for some sort of revenge there after they've beaten us a number of times. And then just quickly to round out the Australian stuff, did see the Aussie under-19s unfortunately won't be playing in the 2023 World Cup in Hungary after withdrawing from the Asia Cup in Iran over safety fears. Do you have a problem with either side of this? Well, I think if a team qualifies, but for like, obviously, if they needed to win that match to qualify, then bad luck. But if they've qualified prior to that match, which they had, it's a bit rough, I think. Maybe a little bit rough. I mean, look, I guess at the end of the day, if it is a prerequisite, then, you know, I guess I liken it to going to a university where you have a component based around assignments, but you also have a component based on attendance or something like that. And so I guess them not attending means they fail. Well, as someone who's worked in a university for over a decade now, Stewie, it's never attendance, it's participation. You don't get marks just for turning up, you actually have to participate. All right, fine, fine. Well, it's been a lot longer since I've been in a university lecture room, I have to say. That's all right, Stewie, you can be forgiven. That's theatre to me, by the way, not uh, not room. Anyway. <laughs> Let's do some quick hits on the NBA, Stewie. I've just got some random bits and pieces, really. There's there's some interesting things going on, though. The, the, the kind of the trends are continuing a little bit. Well, it's probably been one of the weirdest weeks I can remember. I mean, if you go back a couple of weeks, Cleveland was this team everyone was putting into the Eastern Conference Finals. They now have the longest losing streak in the league at five. You've got Philadelphia, Miami, Chicago, Brooklyn, Minnesota, Golden State, and the Lakers, all 500 or worse, or in the case of the Lakers, much worse. Players are finally getting texts for the way they react to referees, or in the case of Trey Young for doing that stupid too small gesture. And as quickly as it became fun, the LeBron James not Stradamus memes became cringy as fuck. And then bloody Dallas today, 27 points from their starters without Luka, and they lost at home to Houston. So a lot going on. Very weird. It's unbelievable. Like that, that just goes to show how important Luka is to that team and how much of a burden that are on his shoulders. And I mean, obviously the Mavs, 
participated in the Western Conference Finals last year. So they're a good team. But, geez, it's hard to see the path back there if they're relying on Luca so much. Because, I mean, obviously we talked about that 30-point streak that extended beyond six or seven games. Just, oh, I'd be worrying if I was a Mavs fan that that he's going to run out of gas. They're going to have to really manage him throughout the season. Or if there's games that he's not going to be playing, you've probably got someone who's a little bit more potent offensively into the starting five, and whether that be like a Spencer Dinwiddie or, I don't know, Tim Hardaway Jr., someone who can put up points. But yeah, not a particularly great performance. And Din- Dinwiddie's been quite good, I think. He's fit into that team quite well, but they are missing Brunson, I think. Oh, yeah. He's a, a very, very huge part of what they did last season. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, this is what happens, though. You you find that guys will often bolt for the, the I guess, the, the grass being greener on that other side, which in this case was a $100 million contract. Well, and also a guaranteed starting role. I, I can understand why he did what he did. Yeah. Now, we did talk about, obviously, that hideous performance there. There have been a couple of very, very big performances this oh, week. Yeah. So, obviously, the biggest performance was the 59-point, 11-rebound, 8-assist, 7-block performance from Joel Embiid against Utah on Sunday. Now, this was the fifth highest score from a 76er of all time. Have a guess who, well, put it this way, there were four of them between two players. Have a guess who the two players were. Well, Wilt Chamberlain would have to be one of the two. Correct. 68, 65, and 62-point games. And who had the other 60-point game in 76er history? Well, I'd have to guess Alan Iverson. Correct. Two from two. Beautiful. And before people start adding me, oh, Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game, yes, okay, he was with Philadelphia, but that was when they were the Warriors, not the 76ers. So, so you can shut it, okay? It was the Warriors. Yes, indeed. Yeah. No, the, the the moving, it's the basketball thing again, isn't it? The moving teams get confusing. It does. It does. And the crazy thing about that is that all of that overshadowed Darius Garland nabbing the first 50-point game of the season with 51 points on 10 threes, six assists as well in a loss to Minnesota. Anthony Davis had 37 and 18 in a win over Brooklyn. Demarcus Sabonis had 26, 22 and eight assists on the Warriors. And Shea Gilgis-Alexander put 37 points, eight assists and five boards on the Knicks all in the same day. Oh, you've given me so much here. So a couple of things. Davis has started to look a little bit better. You wonder if it's the trade rumours. And there's been some rumours floating around, like maybe Draymond Green and one of the young Golden State Warriors players, for example, for AD. That's one of the ones that's a bit popular at the moment. That was a fun game between the Lakers and, and Nets. I only saw the mini, but... Russ and KD going back and forth was really cool and some good blocks, some good highlights in that game. But I've got a stat on SGA, Stewie, while you're talking about him. He's 17.1 points in the paint. And look, granted, it's only been about 10 to 12 games, depending on what team it is. But only Shaq, Giannis and Zion have averaged more in the last 25 years. Well, it's funny you say that because I I do have a little bit to talk about with OKC. So it might actually be a a perfect segue into talking about them and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So... Obviously, Nath, I know you are not a big fan of talking MVPs this early in a season, but it is a fucking disgrace that he is not in people's top tens. Like, I think I've seen one, I think it was Sports by Fry was the only one I saw that had him in the top 10. He's averaging at this stage, now I haven't had a look at the numbers after today's game, but they would have probably gone up. 31 and a half points, nearly six assists, over two steals and one and a half blocks a game on nearly 54% from the field, 94% from the line. It is that is ridiculous. On top of obviously the points in the paint that you've just spoken about, like the the stuff that he's doing, thirty three points or more in eight of his last ten games as well. So he is putting up huge numbers. Like he's doing more than Steph. He's doing more than Dame Lillard. He's doing more than Devin Booker. He's probably even doing more than Jamaran at the moment. And as a result of that, the Thunder team that should be absolute horseshit is actually being pretty decent. He's sitting at seven and eight, which is very disappointing. It's just it's driving me nuts. Well, you look. MVP talk this early drives me nuts. They shouldn't even be fucking top 10 lists at this point. But I will jump on the SJ thing. I mean, yes, he's made the next step. Giddy has clearly made the next step. Poku has made the next step. This is exactly why I didn't think that the Thunder would be one of the worst teams in the league because they've all improved. They are all competitive. Giddy has looked fantastic. I've seen one full game and, and a number of minis. This Thunder team is already on the up and up. Which is just incredibly disappointing for me. I just wanted one more season. It's yeah, and and I will say this as well. The thing I like about this Thunder team is that they they've kind of embraced what they're good at. And if you look at the team, they're not a particularly great three point shooting team. In fact, they're the fifth worst shooting team in the league basically. But they lead the league in points in the paint and field goals made per game because they're getting to the rack. They're understanding they're not a good shooting team, and this is what they do. 
So yeah, it's uh, it's as I say, it, it's been frustrating. Obviously, I would love them to just be shit for one more season, but it is what it is. And there's been some talks that SGA is sick of losing, but you've you've heard something on the flip side of that. So who knows what the truth is? Yeah, well, this is it. And I will say one positive thing. Before the game today, the Thunder actually had the same record after 14 games as they did last season, and I think they finished like 27 and 55. So possibly it might be time for Shea to get tired and have a big rest like yeah, he did last I, season. Again, though, why would you waste a guy's prime, or not prime, but why would you waste, when a guy is playing so well, he does not want to sit on the pine for some bullshit stupid injury. So I think it would be a shame and... Yeah, I, I hope they keep continuing to compete. And I'm actually, I'm enjoying the Spurs competing too. So look, if if Wemby happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Spurs trade Pirtle. That's the next one on the uh, on the radar at the moment as far as trades are concerned. And Boston apparently are one of the teams that are really sniffing around for him. So Exactly. I do just have a couple of other quick hits on the, the Thunder as well. The Thunder led by 15 and said against the Celtics the other day, and Shea was brilliant. I saw a tweet from a guy named Fraser Ramon who said, someone should tell Jalen that Shea said something anti-Semitic. That way he might start defending him. Oh, jeez. Yeah, ouch. That was, <laughs> oh, dearie me, dearie, dearie me. And look, the last thing, the other day there was a sequence that went Williams to Williams to Williams to Williams to Williams to Williams. You're so Jalen. You're yeah, Jalen, no, Jalen, Jalen, and Kenrick passing the ball between themselves across 10 seconds. Brilliant. Oh, that's a commentator's dream. That's hilarious. Yeah, so good. So, Nathan, you did mention the Golden State Warriors at the top, and I, I kind of briefly mentioned as well that they're kind of struggling a little bit. It's maybe not panic stations yet for them. They're not firing on all cylinders. It's very, very clear. They're six and nine, having just lost to Phoenix. They're only, what, three and a half games behind the Suns in fourth spot. But at the same time, they also sit behind Sacramento, having lost to the Kings. Oh, and geez, Clay Thompson's got away with some dodgy fouls at the end of games, hasn't he? Well, yeah, there was that one against Sacramento in the other game they played that would have probably led to three free throws to tie the game. It was definitely a foul to me. It should have been called. It really should have. And there was a moving screen one as well. So, yeah, he's got away with a couple lately. Yeah, there was that moving screen on the three that Steph Curry hit to put him up by four in a particular game. I can't remember who that was against, but yeah, they, they get away with a lot of that stuff. They always have. But then on top of losing to the Kings, they've also lost to the Magic, the Pistons, and the Hornets, and they're 0-8 on the road to start the season. So very unlike Golden State. Steph's obviously been otherworldly. I haven't had a chance to have a look at his stats for today, but coming into that, he was averaging 31.5, 6.6 boards, 6.4 assists, just over a steal a game on a 52-43-92 clip just ridiculous. I think what irks me about this team, though, is they don't seem to have any kind of succession plan. Like, Have you noticed anything around that? Well, there's two. Before we get there, there's two obvious things that kind of pop out to me. One is they're good enough to have these ebbs and flows throughout the season where they're the sort of team that could win it out of the sixth seed, for example. Now, it's not easy, but they're the sort of team that could do it. There's, there's not many teams in the league that could do it, but they're one of them. The other one to me is... Maybe the Draymond punch was, you know, pretty big deal. And maybe that's really affected the start of their season. Oh, look, yeah, there's every every possibility. Just quickly, I have had a look at the box score in the Warriors and Suns game, and Steph went for 50. So there you go. <laughs> there pretty, you go, uh, another. <laughs> pretty handy. Another 50. Well, yeah, got back to the succession planning thing. I mean, obviously, they've drafted these young guys with high hopes. Look, I don't know. I think to me, Draymond is probably the guy they need to really consider moving on in order to maybe refresh that plan a little bit. They used the second pick on James Wiseman three years ago, and then a couple of seasons ago, the seventh and 14th pick on Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody. And they're so far down the pecking order right now. like They're just barely even getting on the court half the time. And Steph's playing, at the moment, the most minutes he's played per game since the 2013-14 season, which tells you a lot about where they're at. And speaking of Pirtle before, I've heard people speculate about a Pirtle for Wiseman trade, which I'd I'd be happy with actually. But oh, I, I don't absolutely. know. Absolutely, I don't know if that would happen. But uh, yeah, oh, you'd be crazy not to take that. I mean, that's like Wiseman's got a lot of upside. Pirtle's a bloody good player, but it's just yeah, I think Wiseman's ceiling is a lot higher. Pirtle, and look, I've said it before, but Pirtle, Richardson, McDermott, these are blokes that you try and try and get a pick for, basically, to move forward with. Yeah. Now, looking at some of the other issues as well, they're obviously not getting close to the same Clay Thompson as pre-injury. He's got issues on both ends, though, shooting 35% from the field, 33 on threes and 75 at the line, which would all be career lows. 
is on track for the second lowest scoring season of his career. And this is a guy who was one of the better perimeter on-ball defenders out there, and he can't keep guys in front of him. Like it's it's a sad story, but it's also a problem. He's 32 now, and it's probably time to turn the shooting guard position across to Jordan Poole. Well, he's also had a number of pretty significant injuries too. So so that would impact on his mobility along with the age. I think he can still help a team, but it's got to be... Well, well he's, it's the cost, isn't it? The, these older blokes that command these massive contracts, yeah, are they really good value for money as they get older? And that's a really, really good segue into the next thing that I kind of wanted to talk about was, I guess, the, the big issue around the costs. So... Obviously, yeah, we've mentioned a couple of guys. We've mentioned Draymond Green. You know, he's averaging less rebounds than Steph right now for the season and seems to be regressing. And if you look at, I guess, the the numbers, you know, firstly, the ages, Clay and Draymond are both 32, Steph's 34. They've got Wiggins, who is a little bit younger, but obviously, you know, they, there's a cost there. Steph's in the first year of a four year, $215 million deal. Clay Thompson will make $43 million next year. Wiggins will be out of contract after this season, but there's no way he's signing less than the $34 million he's on this season. And Draymond Green's halfway through a four-year $100 million deal. So this team is, I think, about $268 million above the luxury tax at this stage next year. And the big thing was that GM Bob Myers said that it's a commitment to winning. But the team is three games below 500, 15 games into the season. So at what point do they look at it and go, well, maybe we need to kind of break things up here? I think... They'll probably hold firm until the deadline, but if if things haven't improved significantly around the deadline, I think they probably have no choice but to try and shed some salary in order to open up some playing time for those young guys. I really do like Jordan Paul. He had a really good game the other day as well, but he's a bit of a defensive liability in the playoffs, but geez, he can put the score on the board. There's no, no doubt about that. He really can put points on the board today. 0 of 5 for two points. Massive. <laughs> oh, there you go. Typical. Okay. It was, yeah, it was odds on. Mind you, Clay Thompson was no better, 6 of 17 from the field. So, yeah, there's uh, some big issues coming out of Golden State right now. So, Nath, a couple of quick stats you've got for us. Yeah, so I've noticed that the Raptors with Pascal Siakam are 6th in offensive rating, 4th in defensive, and 4th in net rating. Without him, they're 16th, 24th, and 25th. So that's a significant difference. So, so the Raptors are basically a different team without him, which is interesting. And then I also saw on Hayden Mews, Ja Morant is four and six without Desmond Bain. By the way, that dunk Ja Morant had the other day where he switched hands was magnificent. But he's four and six without Desmond Bain. Bain, on the other hand, is 24 and nine without Ja. Do you know, just as concerning as the actual percentages there is the number of games he's played without Ja. Yeah, it's a few. It's a few. 33 for those who can't do math. Pretty, (laughs) pretty crazy. Okay, Nath, we're just going to finish up the NBA trivia without notice. I'm going to give you a list of the top five guys in the league for something. See if you can figure out what this goofy stat is. Oh, God. So, the top five. Bol Bol, JT Thor, Alex Len, Mo Bamba, and Nas Reed. Far out. Um, couldn't tell you. I-, I couldn't even hazard a guess. These are the top five guys in the NBA for inches to letters in their name ratio. I did see that. I did see the Orlando Magic. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah, God, when you've got an 82-game season, you've got, to, you've got to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find some stupid shit, don't you? That's crazy. You do. So, <laughs> Bol Bol, 86 inches tall, six letters in his name, a 14.3 inches to letter ratio. Fucking hell. <laughs> so, quickly, some quick hits on American football, Stewie, and... There's no easy way to introduce this first story, is there? I mean, injury to insult isn't even close to describing just a tragic set of events. At the University of Virginia, former player Chris Jones allegedly killed three current players, Lavelle Davis Jr., Deshaun Perry, and Devin Chandler. And that was a day after it just what well, wasn't a very good game for them, was it? Well, it wasn't. I mean, and this was doing all the rounds on Twitter. You had Virginia quarterback Brennan Armstrong threw two pick sixes in the first 16 seconds of the game. Literally the first pass of the game, MJ Devonshire picks it off and walks it into the house for a touchdown. The very next play in the next throw, Marquise Williams made the intercept round at 40 yards. It just, you know, you look at something like that and you go, wow, what a crazy thing to happen. And then you find out 24 hours later that it just could not have meant less if it if it tried. Well, that's right. Immediate perspective, isn't it? I mean, when when you're an offensive player, if you throw a pick six, you go, all right, we'll go back on the field and we'll rectify the issue. And then you throw a second pick six. Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, it pales in comparison to just 
Another tragic story. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. It really is. I was actually still awake when that news broke. I think it was about midnight, 1230-ish Perth time. And it just, yeah, it just immediately put things in perspective because I was watching First Take and they go from talking about something that's, I don't know, fairly innocuous and kind of just an excuse to argue about sport like we love doing. And then you see this and you're just like, oh, just so sad. And also to know that, you know, Deshaun Perry appeared in the game. He, he, this is a, a linebacker and defensive end who appeared in that game the day before. Mike Hollins, one of the running back, appeared in the game. He was one of the two people to be injured. So, you know, it does. It just puts so much stuff into perspective that, unfortunately, like as much as we think that sport can be life and death sometimes, like, there is literally more to it than that. Like, this is – it's just a game of football, whereas, yeah. like, this stuff is this stuff is actual real life. Yeah, sadly, yeah. more more people just taken far too young. It's just, uh, it's been a really sad week for it, obviously, with with what we've already discussed as well. There's no easy way to move on from that. But in his last two games, Jeff Saturday is one and one with a loss against Fellowship Christian Paladins and a win against the Las Vegas Raiders. He went from being an ESPN analyst who tweeted, the Raiders look horrible on the 30th of October to coaching the Colts to a victory over those very Raiders less than a fortnight later. Got to feel good about that then. It makes his comments seem a little bit more uh, realistic, I guess. Good scouting, and I dare say I picked it, Stewie. Yep, you did. You did. I'll give you credit for that one. Philly up this week, though, so it doesn't get much easier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Philly coming off a loss as well. They're going to be pissed. Yes, indeed. A couple of things I noticed as well. Did you see Jacksonville not only try, but also recover an onside kick on the very first play of the game the other day against the Chiefs? I didn't. It was a gutsy move, though. I, I, Well, obviously I would. I distinctly remember the Colts losing to the Saints in that Super Bowl, and they tried an onside kick at the start of the second half, which they managed successfully. So it's it's a good way to start a game or a half. It's very impressive. It is. Unfortunately, it didn't make a shit of a difference for them. They lost to the Chiefs 27-17, to but very, very cool to make that work on the first play. And a stat that I saw, which is absolutely crazy, I saw a graphic about the yardage on the longest touchdown that each team's had this season. So the Buffalo Bills have the longest touchdown of the season at 98 yards from Gabe Davis in week five against the Steelers, second minute of the game. So a really good way to start a game. They also had a 62-yarder in that game. So they, yeah, played really, really well. Conversely, though, nine games in, those same Pittsburgh Steelers have a longest touchdown of just eight yards. Yeah, that's, I mean, crikey. That's... That it almost defies belief after what ten or eleven weeks, and I'm like, is that a team that I don't know? I mean, I don't know much about the Steelers. Are they just a team that runs the football a lot? Uh, well, they've had their issues at running back. They've had some injuries. Uh, Najee Harris is is their their main running back there, but they're, they're in danger of. I mean, they're they're kind of one of those teams that we kind of compared to the Perth Wildcats and previously the San Antonio Spurs, for example, as being one of those teams that just basically hardly ever misses the playoffs. But I tell you what, at the bottom of the AFC North at three and six, they're in strong danger of that. Mm-hmm. Can't win them all though, of course. A couple of things really quickly, Stewie. Now, Minnesota at Buffalo. I have to go back and watch this one. I've watched the mini, but I think I'm going to go back and watch the full game because many are calling it the best regular season game of all time. Buffalo led 27 to 10 late in the third before Dalvin Cook broke for a nice big 80-odd yard run. Buffalo's social media tweeted, Fourth down stop, ball game, up 27-23 with two minutes and 11 seconds left. But at fourth and 18, just after the two-minute warning, Justin Jefferson pulled in an absolute miraculous catch to keep the game alive. Now, I know you've got some thoughts about that catch. Yeah, to me, look, I guess more of an AFL fan than an NFL fan. Ordinarily, we would say, yeah, man in front, you pay the mark. But quite often when guys come over the pack and get first hands on the ball, that's who you pay the mark to. And for me, I think, the, the guy at the back, the defender, had well and truly the first touch and probably the second touch as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Yeah, look, under the letter of the law, it's a catch. And having rewatched the mini today, I because I've got leave for once, which is why we're recording at a weird time on a, on a weekday. But I, I don't know. I'm happy with the catch. I think it's all about control, and, and he controlled it. You can't fall asleep as a defender. So... So I'm actually okay with that. Jefferson was just incredible. He he had a number of really good catches. Stefan Diggs had a number of big catches. After that play, Allen led a nice drive to get the game-tying field goal to force overtime in less than 40 seconds. 
The Vikings went up three in overtime. Allen had another really good drive, looking like he was going to lead them to a victory and then threw a pick at the end. There was also a fumbled snap that led to a touchdown to the Vikings. A lot of people were saying, oh, well, if they just allowed a safety, but no, you don't You don't allow a safety and you've still got to punt it out of your end zone after that. So yeah, I, I just an incredible game. I look forward to going back to watch. I really do because I had so many highlights. I do suspect that, I don't like to to make the label without watching the whole thing or really doing my research. But from what I can tell, the Bills really choked this one away. So the, the biggest thing I'm taking out of this is that Josh Allen's playing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He played okay. He didn't he didn't play terribly. He didn't play spectacularly well. So the, the medical staff basically determined that he couldn't do any further damage and that he he'd be okay. So yeah, he wow. did. So he was 29 for 43, 330 yards. He had two picks, but he did have the one touchdown. He had 84 yards on the ground too. So he had an okay game. But uh, look, we're quickly running out of time as usual. I want to finish with some levity. At Noona Nation on Twitter, did a coin flip for every Jets game back in August and so far has got every single game right to round 11. According to the coin, they'll lose their next one to Chicago before going on a five-game winning streak and finishing the season 11-6 and six ultimately losing the AFC Championship game. So we'll keep an eye on that one to see how well those coin flip predictions go. Gee whiz, that's, that's impressive. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, look, even though England won, and I'm not particularly happy, it was a really, really great T20 World Cup. And yes, we absolutely shouldn't have them every couple of years, but it was obviously great to watch some good cricket. So much great stuff happening on the field and on the courts, and unfortunately a lot of really disappointing and sad stuff happening off as well. So a real mixed bag of emotions this week, and look, just so much to talk about. Never a dull moment in the sporting world. Looks like Darwin Milan's going quite well for England there, probably leading them to a competitive total. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.